This week we're going to talk about the creed, specifically the Nicene Creed, um, because today in churches all over, not just America, but churches all over the world, people will get together and they will be in a church gathering, a worship gathering, and they will recite together uh, creeds, one of them being kind of the main one people know about is the Nicene Creed. And uh, if you grew up like I did, I grew up in sort of non-creedal tradition in the sense that uh, growing up free will and Southern Baptist, we didn't say the creeds on a regular basis at all, but we also knew that we had to believe what was in them, right? Even if you didn't know what the creed was, the content of the creed was essentially what we were told and taught to believe. And so, you know, creed the creed essentially defines for lots and lots of Christians what they should believe or what they must believe. The creeds are, are sort of the litmus test and standard for orthodoxy, what the right opinion is. I also think they're really, really, really problematic. Um, and that's what I want to explore today. And I want to begin with this. And it's something I've hinted at and maybe even said at, at different times, but I want to really say it clearly today. Before the fourth century, before the 300s, um, before the creeds, the, the emerging Jesus movement, this tradition that sprung up around Jesus, was really, really, really diverse. Um, there, there, it, there's a recent book that came out called, I think, After Jesus Before Christianity, that explores those you know, few hundred years before the ch church became the church and before the creeds and all of those other things, before orthodoxy was really a thing, this was a really diverse movement. People didn't believe all the same things about Jesus. Some people believed, um, for example, there were people who believed that Jesus became son of God at his birth, right? There were some people before, even before that tradition, there were some people who believed that Jesus became son of God at his baptism, that that's when he sort of had this this sense of who he was and his purpose. There are others, like the Apostle Paul in Romans 1, who seems to believe that Jesus became Son of God at his resurrection. And that didn't stop outside of the, the timeline of the New Testament. People kept creating communities, and they would create communities, and these various communities had different opinions and different interpretations, and some of them privileged certain texts over others, even though we didn't have a Bible yet. They were still reading and circulating letters and gospels and those sorts of things. And so these communities were really, really diverse. Uh, and, and when you read the writings, the genuine letters of Paul in the New Testament, you can see the diversity that, that there's a group of people saying, actually, if you want to be in part of this Jesus movement, you have to first go through the rites of conversion into, into the Jewish faith. And you have others like Paul who are saying, no, you don't have to do that, right? So these are all traditions that are about Jesus and about people who want to be on the Jesus path, but they're really, really diverse. And so how is it possible and I, I get in these conversations all the time where people are like, there is no such thing as Christ there, there's this one, there is a such thing as a Christian faith. It's one thing all Christians everywhere have to believe it and, and, and assent to it. And if you don't believe it, and if you don't, if you don't affirm it, then you're not a Christian. But that's never been how it works. The truth is, there is no such thing as Christianity. There are only Christianities. Right? There, there's no such thing as the Christian faith. There are only expressions of the Christian faith. There, and, and you could say it like this. There, uh, somebody said this to me on Twitter this week. There are probably as many versions of Christianity as there are Christians, right? Because everybody does their own thing with it. Everybody, and this really became clear to me when I was in grad school. And I had a professor who, who specialized in Asian religions, specifically Buddhism. And he told us one day in a class, 
uh, a seminar class. He said, at the end of uh, the semester with my undergrads, after I've just taught them introduction to Buddhism, one of the things I like to do is I tell them, maybe don't tell your parents this. They may not like that they paid money for this class after this. But here's the truth. In this course, over the course of the semester, I have not taught you about Buddhism. Um, there is no such thing as Buddhism. There are only Buddhisms, right? Because the lived experience of people doesn't play out like the things I taught you in this class, right? And that, so that's what we're talking about when we say there is no Christianity, there are only Christianities. There, there is this monolith called the Christian faith. It's sort of an umbrella and underneath it are all these different interpretations and expressions. It's why there are thousands upon thousands of denominations because everybody can't agree. It's why there isn't just one specific church. Now, there are lots of churches and lots of denominations that think they're the ones who got it right. Um, but the reality is that the reason for so many denominations and interpretation is because lots and lots of people see this differently. And then they, they come to jumping off points and they start their own thing. So before the third, fourth century, 300s, this was a really diverse tradition. And then I want to give you a couple of key dates. So one of the things I have to do here before I really dive into the Nicene Creed is I have to give you a little bit of history and a little bit of church history. And I'm going to try to make that as non-snooze fest as possible. But for you to understand sort of where I'm going to come from on this, you have to know a little bit about where we as a tradition came from. And I want to begin in the year 312 CE. The year 312 is the year that Constantine converted. And I put that in quotes for a very important reason. I don't know that it's actually, uh, you know, I don't know what actually happened, but Constantine is said to have converted to Christianity. And actually, maybe it wasn't so much converted as Constantine converted, began to convert Christianity. And here's what happened. There's nobody knows actually historically what happened, but there's a legend that emerged that Constantine, the Roman empire was divided and Constantine was fighting for power. And he comes to this place where there's going to be a battle at a place called the Milvian Bridge. And Constantine wants to win. And so he's trying to sort out how he's going to do that. And he has this vision. And in the vision, there's this voice. He sees this, these letters, the Chi and the Rho in Greek, which are the first two letters of Christ. And he's told by this voice to conquer by this sign. And so Constantine takes the Chi and the Rho, the first two letters of Christ in Greek. He puts them on his uh, soldiers' uh, shields and he goes into battle and he wins. And essentially he believes that the Christian God has provided him with victory. And so as a result of that, Constantine does some interesting things. He takes some steps. Uh, one of the first ones is in the year 313, a year later, he issued the Edict of Milan. Uh, which is essentially an edict of toleration. And what that means is that, that before that, and we'll, we'll see this in just a little bit, but before that, the Christian faith, the Christian, being Christian was essentially illegal in the Roman Empire. And what the edict of toleration did, it didn't make Christianity the official religion of Rome. That happened later. But what it did do is it said that it's okay to be Christian. You, you can't be prosecuted for being Christian. And it also added a stipulation that all of the property that had been confiscated from Christians or, uh, or property that had been destroyed by the empire that had belonged to Christians would be returned or compensated. So this tradition that was new sort of on the scene and had been illegal is now giving, given essentially legal status and you're being paid back for what you've lost. And, and then a short time later in the year 325, we end up with this event called the Council of Nicaea, which produced a couple of things. It produced the Nicene Creed. It produced the Doctrine of the Trinity. 
It didn't produce, people often say that that's where the, the canon was formed. It's actually not true. Scholars don't actually know if there was ever a moment when the canon was actually formed. We could have all been just assuming this for a long time. Um, and so that's sort of a little bit of history. Constantine around 312 has this moment where he co-ops the Christian symbol, some Christian symbols and uses them for victory in war. Then in 313, there's this edict. And in 325, the Council of Nicaea is convened. Why was the Council of Nicaea convened? And really responding to two key problems. First, there was this problem called the Donatist Schism. Um, raise your hand if you've ever heard of the Donatist Schism. Uh, but we really are not taught church history. Uh, as, even if you grew up Christian, you never really know about this stuff. So here's what happened. During the reign of the Emperor Diocletian from 302 to 306, Christians underwent uh, like a formal official persecution by the Roman Empire. And part of the program of persecution, the emperor ordered that all Christian clergy had to give up their sacred texts. Like, so if you, if you don't want to be martyred, if you don't want to have your property confiscated, if you don't want to go to jail, then you have to hand over your sacred texts. And uh, after that had happened, a, a lot of them did. A lot of the clergy handed over their texts because they wanted to avoid an arrest or martyrdom or confiscation of property. But after the persecution had ended, it was formally ended, a bishop named Donatist, Donatus was insistent that the people who had turned him over, and in Latin they were called traitores, which means who handed over. It's where we get our word traitor. Um, he, he insisted that anybody who had handed over their text were no longer fit for ministry. They had disqualified themselves. And so because when this is happening, this whole thing with, is new with Constantine and Christianity being legal now and allowable, um, and so what they do, the bishops ask Constantine, the Roman emperor, they ask Constantine to intervene and mediate the dispute. And he issued, Constantine essentially makes the decision for the bishops and issues this policy that essentially we would say is sort of like forgive and forget, right? Just that he ends up siding against Donatist, Donatist and with those who had handed over their text and were um, wanting to still serve in ministry. And so that's significant enough, but what is really significant is this decision, sort of inviting Constantine into this process, makes him in some ways the Roman emperor, the empire that a few hundred years before this had executed Jesus. It sort of makes Constantine the head of the church, right? Now his opinion matters and is significant and weighs in uh, maybe um, in ways that are like if you were to put a set of scales up, Constantine's opinion is going to weigh pretty heavily compared to actually the rest of the church. And, and so then we come up to the year 325. In the year 325, the Council of Nicaea is called because of a, of a conflict in the church, and it's called the Arian Controversy. And the Arian Controversy is essentially a conflict between ch some church leaders about how exactly Jesus related to God. There's this priest named Arius who argued that Jesus was the first of God's creation. He even had a slogan, there was a time when he was not, right? So this, this uh, Arius, this priest would say that, that in the beginning there was God and eventually God created Jesus. There was another bishop named Athanasius who was sort of Arius's bishop, his boss. And Athanasius argued that actually that's wrong and that Jesus was in fact of the same substance as God. So, um, and there's some really technical Greek words being thrown around in there, but the, the debate is this, how does Jesus relate to God? Was Jesus created by God, even, even begotten by God as the first of God's creation or is Jesus always been part of God. 
when it, all the chips were down and everybody had their say, Arius got expelled from his role, but it didn't shut him up. It didn't silence him. Soon he, he kept teaching it and there was a massive controversy. And that controversy was a problem for Constantine because the year before this controversy in 324, Constantine had finally become the sole Roman emperor. He was no longer sharing power with anyone else. He had, he had united the empire and he needed the empire to be in agreement and everybody pulling in the same direction because they'd had years of conflict. And so his idea, Constantine's idea is, here's what we need. We need to unite the empire under one religious banner, right? Because there were lots of different religions in the Roman empire. And actually what made them skeptical of Christians in the beginning was that Christians were monotheists. And, and so Constantine says, we need to unite the entire empire around one religious banner. And this conflict between Arius and Athanasius about how Jesus relates to God was beginning to drive such a big wedge in the, the community known as the church that it was a problem for Constantine. It was threatening the stability of the empire. And so... To remedy the conflict, the Council of Nicaea was called, and it was convened under the watchful eye of Constantine himself. He was in the room. Actually, public funds were used by Constantine to help the bishops travel and provide them lodging, and they held the conference, the council in the palace of Constantine. And this council produced the Doctrine of the Trinity, like I said. It produced the Nicene Creed, which ultimately had to be approved by Constantine before uh, it was settled. Arius and a couple of others were there and they refused to sign onto the new orthodoxy and they were kicked out of the church and sent into exile. So there was a religious penalty for their failure to get on board, but there was also a civic, a civil penalty for their refusal to get on board. Suddenly church and state now, and this is a brand new thing in history, church and state for the Christian church is becoming so intertwined that if you get in trouble with the church, you're in trouble with the state and vice versa. And so that's all your history lesson. And, and here's what I want to say. The creeds were an attempt to homogenize, institutionalize, and ultimately control the Jesus movement. The creed was born out of an attempt. The empire is getting a little, we, we can't have people disagreeing about this theology because I need the empire to unite under this particular banner. And so we've got to do something to stabilize it. We've got to have, we've got to create an orthodoxy that everybody adheres to. And if you don't adhere to it, you're now out. By the way, the word heretic Heresy literally just means to have an opinion, but it came to stand for having a pen, an opinion that was outside the boundaries and the bounds of what was considered orthodox by the church. And I don't know if you've ever heard the creed, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you. Um, and so this is the first edition. There's a, another edition that happened several years later where they added some things, but this is the initial Nicene Creed from 325. Here we go. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance. And that's the word uh, that in the Greek language, this is the word that became the sticking point for so, um, for so many of them. Of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into being, things in heaven on things on earth, who because of us men, notice the patriarchal language, and because of our salvation came down and became incarnate and became human and suffered and rose again on the third day and ascended to the heavens and will come to judge the living and the dead and in the Holy Spirit. And that's where the creed initially ends, but there's sort of this parenthetical comment at the bottom. Notice this. 
But as for the, and this is not included in the edition of 381, which happened in Constantinople. But as for those who say there was when he was not, and before being born he was not, and that he came into existence out of nothing, or who assert that the Son of God is of a different substance or created or is subject to alteration or change, these the Catholic and Apostolic Church condemns. In the creed, in the creed, when they came up with their, here's our litmus test for orthodoxy, at the end of it, they included a statement being very clear at who they're targeting and who they're trying to expel and kick out. Built into the fabric and DNA of the creed is who it's trying to exclude. And so I want to just share briefly uh, uh, the problem I see with creeds and, and why I don't recite the creed and why I can't recite the creed, partly because I disagree with some of where they landed. And we'll talk more about that, too. But, but here's the first thing is creeds are inherently exclusionary. Right? The whole purpose of the creed was to exclude somebody. The purpose of the creed was not like, hey, let's get together and let's wrestle through this and let's let's find the things we can agree on and let's put those in a statement and celebrate that we can agree on them. The entire purpose of the creed was to make sure those who did not fall into line and those who had a different opinion, that they knew they were no longer welcome in this thing that was becoming the church. They're inherently exclusionary. You see, this is the problem when the point of faith becomes believing the right things to get the right outcomes. You can end up justifying a lot of human terror and a lot of human evil and violence and corruption. You can end up justifying a lot of that if the point of faith is just believing the right things so you get a good positive outcome when you die. You see, the, the idea that this creed is exclusionary cuts against the very nature of who I think Jesus was and what these early communities of Jesus followers were doing. Jesus' movement was about transgressing the borders and the boundaries that kept people separate from one another. Like That's what the Jesus movement was doing. I, I love it. It's written in Paul's name, likely not written by Paul, but this letter of Ephesians where it talks about in Jesus, he tears down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. That Jesus is trying to tear down the dividing walls of hostility that are keeping human beings separate from one another. And the truth is Jesus did not come. He did not live and work and die. Jesus' life was not about helping us overcome separation from God. It's just not true. You have never been separated from God. You and I are inherently united with God. Jesus' work was about helping us overcome separation with one another and ourselves. And when we have creeds, when we have statements in place, when we have doctrines and dogmas in place, the whole point of them is to say, this is who's in and this is who's out. This is who belongs and this is who's excluded. This is who we consider good and this is who we consider bad, simply based on their theological commitments about how Jesus relates to God or any other number of theological commitments. When we've done that, we are now, I think, doing in an, creating an anti-Jesus movement. It's actually doing the opposite. So the number one problem I see with creeds, when we create these statements of faith that people have to sign on to if they're going to belong, is that we have done something that is inherently exclusionary. We've created a statement for the purpose of keeping people away. And, and second, creeds are just expressions of momentary understandings. That's what they are. The Nicene Creed is a fourth century expression of a faith that was increasingly being influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy. 
I, I think if you had been able, if we had a time machine, we could go back in time and we could actually talk to people like Jesus or people who knew Jesus in this life. And we were to read them the Nicene Creed and all the things it said about Jesus. I think they would not actually recognize him. Because what we end up with in, I think, the Nicene Creed is more of a Roman demigod than this first century human being who embodied the kingdom and mission of God in the world. I love what John Shelby Spong says. The, the creeds of the church represent a fourth century attempt to codify the, that, the Jesus experience, whatever it was. The creeds thus reflect the dualistic worldview of the Greek mind that dominated fourth century thought. If we literalize the creeds or claims for their eternal and fallible truth, we are inevitably literalizing the frame of reference of this long past era. No explanation can ever be identified with the experience or even the truth that it seeks to explain. Take out the idea that it's just inherently exclusionary. When we say that in the fourth century, some people wrote some stuff down about their interpretation and understanding of Jesus, and now that is the lens through which everybody must always understand it. I mean, how limiting, how narrow. Do, do we really agree with people in the fourth century on law? I mean, do we want to take their advice on medical care? Do we want to take their advice on how the, the solar system works? No. It's an expression of a group of people in time, and it should be honored because of that. Yes. But is it the be-all, end-all, infallible claim for all Christians everywhere for all of eternity? I don't think so. I think the assumption that then, now, or in the future, that we've arrived at the full, complete, and final expression, that we've somehow conquered mystery, that we've nailed it, that we've figured it all out, it's really just proof maybe that we haven't understood it very much at all. Right? The idea that we've, we have cracked the code, the mystery of God, we figured it out. The, 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 the intricacies of how all of this works, we are the ones who nailed it. Or our, our ancestors in the fourth century or in the 1500s or whenever. I mean, the truth is everything we say, every sermon I preach has an expiration date. I think that's a really good thing. It actually keeps me fresh, right? Because I, I can't really re-preach a lot of the same sermons over the years because my understanding shifts and changes. And that's not because I'm wishy-washy and it's not because I don't have a backbone and it's not because I'm afraid to stand up for something. It's because I think as we're on this journey with the Spirit, we're always being invited into new truths. We're always being able in time and experience allows us to see something that we didn't see before. And when we are given better information, we can make better decisions. When we have new information, we can process that and we can then make better choices. And I think that the process should be leading us to a more inclusive and expansive experience of the faith, not a more narrow and exclusionary experience of the faith. And, and finally, willing with this, I think ultimately creeds distort the meaning of faith altogether. Creeds and, and doctrines and dogma and all those statements that people want us to sign up for and affirm and not agree with, not disagree with or vary from or we'll get kicked out. I think all of those things really distort what faith could be about. And here's what I mean. Uh, creeds essentially turn it into belief in a doctrine versus actually following Jesus. Now, I know people will say, well, you can believe a doctrine and actually follow Jesus. Yeah, maybe, but I think sometimes the doctrines get in the way of the following because our doctrines and dogmas and creeds end up being really narrow and exclusionary. And I don't see Jesus doing that in the world. I see Jesus engaging in an ever expansive ministry an ever-expanding table. 
And when we say belief in doctrine is what matters most, you can believe and you can look throughout church history. You can believe all of the right things about Jesus and do some really terrible things. I'd say the people who launched the Crusades are people who would claim they believed all of the orthodox things about Jesus. Right? And yet they launched wars in Jesus's name, which maybe means they didn't understand him, actually means they didn't understand him at all. And it's also possible to not know very much about theology, but to go into the world and live and practice and be in a way that Jesus was, right? You may not know a lot about theology, but you know how to love people. You may not know a lot about theology, but you know that there's always room at the table, that this is an ever-expanding table, that that bringing people in is way more life-giving and transformative than casting people out. And I think when we put all of our eggs in the basket of creeds and doctrines and dogmas, we, we make belief in Jesus more important than actually believing Jesus, right? I, I think lots of us were taught to believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to have certain theological commitments around who Jesus was so that by believing in Jesus, we could get the benefit of Jesus and go to heaven when we die. But what about actually believing Jesus? What about believing that Jesus was right about loving our enemies? What about believing Jesus was right about not being greedy and hoarding our stuff, but sharing it with those in need? What if Jesus was right about an ever-expanding table? What if Jesus was right? And there's a difference in believing in Jesus to get something out of it, and then believing Jesus and living and embodying that in the world around us. I think creeds really encourage us to believe in Jesus and the right things about Jesus, but it actually doesn't necessarily encourage us to go and embody Jesus in the world. And lastly, I think that creeds distort the meaning of faith by by making being right way more important than being transformed. I see this in social media engagements all the time where I see people who are so sure they're right and that that I and other people are wrong, that they'll say some terrible things, that they will be mean-spirited and harsh and harmful because they believe they're right. But my question is like, What does it matter if you're right, if you're not being transformed? I love the quote by Marcus Borg where he said something of the equivalence of, you can believe all the right things and be miserable. You can believe all the right things and be unchanged. Believing in something, believing in a doctrine, a dogma, a statement has very little transforming power. I mean, the truth is we really don't believe our way into transformation, do we? we? We begin to live our way. Transformation comes when we begin to embody ways of being. And I'm grateful. I think lots of us end up maybe over the course of our, our lives being better than our theology, treating people better than our theology. But, but I think the danger is when we place all of this, like faith is believing in this content versus faith as being a journey of following and trusting this path. And those, I think, are really, really, really radically different things. Sometimes people ask me, does Grace Point have a creed? And after all I've said about creeds, you're going to say, of course he's going to say no, but I actually think we have, we have a creed. And I think it's, it's really important for all of us to memorize it. It's important for us to be able to say it. It's important for us to say it together, say it together on a Sunday morning sometime, right? I'm going to give it to you right now and just get out a piece of paper and a pen and we'll write it down. That way everybody has it. Here we go. Ready? Grace Point's creed is simply this. We belong. We belong. You belong. I belong. We belong. I think creeds are inherently exclusionary. So 
for Grace Point, why not come up with some sort of thing that does the opposite? Because our experience of Jesus has led us to believe and to trust that the best possible way to live our lives, the best possible way to live in community, the best possible way to show up in the world is not with narrow, exclusionary, we got to push out more. Like this becomes really, really cool if there's only a few people who can really be part of it. So let's push everybody out. No, no, our understanding as we come together is what makes this beautiful and incredibly um, unique and, and amazing in the world is that what we're saying is no, 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 not who can we exclude, but who, who can we include? I love the quote from our friend, the late Rachel Hill Evans, who said, what makes the gospel offensive is not who it excludes, but who it includes. And that is our understanding of Jesus. And I know that some of you watching this, you have been told your entire life that you, 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 you don't belong. That because of who you love, you don't belong. That because of how you show up in the world, you don't belong. That because of what you believe about a particular issue, you don't belong. You've been told that because you have questions and doubts, you don't belong. And I am here to tell you in this community, belonging is our compass. Belonging is our North Star. Because I think, we think, Jesus actually taught us that opening up our arms for embrace is way better than pushing people away. You belong we belong, not once you've taken some classes and not once you've passed the doctrinal exam, whatever you believe, whoever you are right now, you belong. If you're here today and you are an atheist, you belong. If you're agnostic, you belong. If you're a progressive Christian, you belong. If you're confused, you belong. If you're trying to discover what this thing is all about, you belong. There is no doctrinal exam you must pass. When we begin to codify and say, these are the things you must, suddenly we've created a club that I don't think Jesus could be a part of. I love these words from Mary Oliver. Um, this coming week is the Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina. And I'll be there um, there every year. And it's just one of the best times of the year where a bunch of people get together and create and, and celebrate and experience. And it's just wonderful. And Mary Oliver has a poem called Wild Geese. And every year at Wild Goose, there's this big board that has this poem written on it. So if you've been there, I bet you're familiar. But at the end of the poem, she has this these couple of lines. And I think it's um, just so beautiful. She says, Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. You have a place in the family of things. You belong. And I know we talk about this a lot at Grace Point. And some people may be like, why do you talk about this so much at Grace Point? Because every week, somebody new joins us who has been told their entire life that they don't belong because of X, Y, Z, and I desperately need you to know that you do. And that the Jesus who walked those dusty roads 2,000 years ago is the same Jesus I believe today who welcomes, celebrates, embraces, and includes each and every one of us. And the way Jesus does that in our context is through this community called the church. And so wherever you are in the world, wherever you find yourself on the map, you may be in a very lonely spot. Know that you have family here. 
You may feel alienated, but know you belong here. <laughs>